The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Good morning. Centuries before the time of Christ, back to the time of uh, King Solomon, the ancient Hebrews would make a pilgrimage to the holy city. And on the road to Jerusalem, on that long uphill climb that leads into the city, they would sing together a set of joyful psalms that came to be called the Psalms of Ascent. In other words, as they were ascending, they would sing these joyful psalms. And even as they passed the foreboding hill of Golgotha, that hill that from ancient times had been called the place of the skull, they knew somehow that the beauty and the joy of the temple of God was waiting for them just a little further up and a little further in. Today, on that same road in the Gospel, as the disciples of Jesus pass by Golgotha, they do not climb that path with a sure and certain sense of purpose and of great joy. Their hearts and their minds, like many of us at this point, are a bit confused. They are tired. They are hungry. They are confused. They thought that they were headed for a triumph and that they were headed for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. They had seen Jesus walk on the water, feed the multitudes, give sight to the blind, raise the dead son of a widow. And yet today, the Lord stuns them. He stuns them when he pulls them aside and tells them bluntly that he is about to be mocked, scourged, spit upon, delivered to the Gentiles, and killed. Doesn't sound like the restoration of the kingdom. While he did say that he would rise again in three days, as they were walking, they might well have passed one of the crucifixions that were done so often along that road on the way into Jerusalem. They might have seen a brutal picture to show them the humiliation that he was predicting for himself. Yet the Lord's announcement didn't quite sink in. Or maybe they just weren't listening. James and John the Beloved, whom Jesus earlier called the Sons of Thunder, came to him and somewhat nervously asked him for permission to sit on his thrones beside him in the kingdom. Perhaps they hadn't been listening too, clo too closely to the last memo. The patience and the graciousness of Jesus here are absolutely remarkable. It is stunning. He gently says to them, you don't know what you ask. 
His reply is gracious, like when he forgives his executioners a few days hence on the cross, when he says they do not know what they do. Such is the Lord's patience with each of us. He forgives our sin done in knowledge, and he forgives our sin that is done when we are just plain clueless. And sometimes we are just plain clueless in our sin. Do we, like the disciples, see today the significance of the journey that we are making? Do we see where we're headed today? The road that they and we are on leads not to riches, nor to thrones, nor to the authority to lord it over those who don't believe like we do. The road that all disciples, them and us, the road that all disciples are on leads to humility, to service, to sacrifice, to a sacrifice that is in the shadow of the cross. Our models and our efforts in this are not those of the pagan kings and queens of this world, nor are they the model of the frivolous celebrities that our popular culture promotes to us today as examples and as leaders. Our saints, our heroes, our models, our servants and martyrs who laid down their lives and when they laid them down, sometimes just in that very moment, when they lay their lives down, they found in that moment what it was that they had been given life for in the first place. For in the laying down of your life, that is where you find your purpose. That is fine, where you find why you were given the life that you cherish. Today, the church in her wisdom sets forth before us the repentance and the humility of St. Mary of Egypt. Her life and her passion were out of control from her youth on. And perhaps that is why the life of this one, who seems sometimes so radical and so strange to the age that we are in now, this one so radical resonates so deeply with so many of us. For how many among us must really in truth say that oft times our lives are out of control? It's like that first step in the 12-step programs you got to first of all realize that your life is out of control. And when you realize that, when you see the wisdom of that, that you really don't have a grip on what's going on with your life, that is the beginning of the path that goes further up and further in to the temple. There was a day when she stood before an icon of the Theotokos. The one who was out of control stood before the one who was humble and perfect. And the one who was humble and perfect 
didn't put her down, but I'm quite sure through the icon, looked her in the eye, and the two souls met in that moment. She was blessed in that moment. She was blessed to touch a relic of the Holy Cross and then to pass on into Jer- over Jordan into the desert. And there she lived out the rest of her days repenting and working to care for the beautiful image that she had been given. For this one who was out of control, who from the outside looked so soiled, in the inside bore that beautiful icon of the image of God, same one that the Holy Theotokos bore. Image speaks to image somewhere deep in our hearts. And from that, we are changed. She spent the rest of her time without worry for the perishable body that she had been given. And what a lesson there is in that for us. She learned to care for that which did not pass away and to set aside that which did pass away. For us old guys, that lesson seems somehow comforting. But as parts are breaking down, as things aren't working quite so well, as we, we clearly, we perhaps more than those of you young among us, we see more clearly that the body is perishing. We see it every morning when we look in the mirror or when we get out of bed, we see that the body is perishing. But it's not just about the fact that we're fallen apart, it's about the fact that hopefully that which is in us is being perfected somehow by grace. Like John the Baptist, she did not seek to be recognized or to be praised by the world. She didn't blog about her experience. She didn't update her status on Facebook with lots of Instagram pictures about what was going on. She went out into the wilderness where there was no one to see what was going on. Yet what conversations she must have had with God in the wilderness. What care from the angels she must have had as she set aside the things of the world. None of us in this world would even know about her if it wasn't for the report of another saint who met her, Saint Zosimus. The gaunt image of her remains for all Christians. She is chosen by so many as a patron. And why is that? Not one who who excelled in the things of the world, who conquered nations, but yet who went to the wilderness and set aside her body and conquered everything about herself and presented it to God. And that a great greater victory than Alexander the Great or anybody else that you could put forth. Can we drink the cup? 
can we submit to the baptism that is required of us this day, that which we seek in Lent? We must, if we are to go on to the resurrection, he who would be great must first be a slave. In St. John Chrysostom's homily on this gospel, he said of the Lord's own humbling, before he humbled himself, only the angels knew him. After he humbled himself, all human nature knew him. Yet see how his humbling did not make him any less, but produce countless blessings. St. John then makes a short, uh, St. John doesn't actually very often make short lists of things, but he, he did in this case. He makes a short list of what the Lord's humbling produced. A few small things. He erased the curse. He triumphed over death. He opened paradise, struck down sin, opened wide the vaults of the sky, lifted our first fruits up to heaven, drove out error, and led back the truth, and produced countless deeds of virtue. He accomplished so many good deeds that neither I nor all of humanity could set them before you in words. Dare we to humble ourselves in such a way, in some small way, to be in the similitude of his humbling, of his laying down. He who created us was so willing to condescend and to walk with us to show us an example of what it means to really fulfill the image of God. Will we kneel in confession like St. Mary of Egypt before the holy icon? Dare we to touch the holy cross? Dare we to touch the relic of it that we have been blessed with? If we are to have the resurrection, we must have that baptism first. If we are to burst upward from the water with shouts of joy, we must, like the old Pentecostals used to say, we must get low. If you want to get to heaven and see eternity unfold, you must, you must get low. Get low. Think about that. The prize for getting low is great. St. John says of, of the Lord again, when he humbled himself, he increased his household and he extended the kingdom. Chrysostom concludes as if asking us today, why then are we afraid that we will become less if we humble ourselves? Why then are we afraid to humble ourselves? We're going to lose something? Just sin and death and the devil. We're just going to lose those things that are passing away anyway. Our gospel was given to us by one who made himself humble. And if we are to speak effectively to this world, if we are to speak effectively to our neighbors and even to those of our very household, we must do like he did. If we want to make progress on this Lenten road we are on, then little by little 
we must get low. It will certainly not be in a great flash, but length by length, confession by confession, as the Lord grants us grace. It is a journey of many steps. It is not a once for all, in a flash kind of thing. Take courage. Remember, it is all of us sinners who he forgives from the cross. Let us then get low to the glory of God.